Good morning to each of you. Uh, this is a uh, somewhat challenging subject in my mind. Um, so there, there are a lot of um, a lot of issues that we face today that are challenging, and this is one of them. And uh, at the end of the sermon this morning, I'm going to raise some issues, uh, maybe like uh, implications of the things that I talk about. And of course, uh, I'm talking about the 16th century, which may feel to many of us like it's very remote, and why are we doing this? Uh, then I think, well, there is nothing new under the sun. It's all been here before, and the ideas, they just kind of repeat themselves. So on the back of your bulletin, uh, you have the outline for the message this morning. And it is um, five, one, two, three, yes, five. I'm going to present five different approaches that people um, in the Anabaptist camp considered, tried, uh, some of them they forsook, um, and no, no doubt some of us will be um, bothered by, uh, maybe we'll find some of these views disconcerting, and we'll feel like, uh, well, why do we even talk about these things today? Uh, why don't you just get up there and tell us what the Bible teaches, and why are you telling us this other stuff? Uh, which I can appreciate that, but we do have a history, and we did get here somehow, and I think sometimes it's helpful to understand the history. So, this idea of that non-resistance and non-participation in civil affairs has not been the consistent Anabaptist Mennonite position since 1520 might be disconcerting, uh, but um, some of these things, these, these issues did get worked out, I believe. I think what we need to understand is that everybody, everybody in the uh, 16th century was struggling with what does it mean for believers and non-believers to live in the same physical space, and uh, what is the proper relationship between church and state, that's our term, I don't think they had those two terms, state, church, state, quite that way in mind, but everyone was struggling with these issues. And uh, people like Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and all their co-workers, everyone was trying to understand how, how should society function. 
And of course, um, they inherited a view, which is the first one on the list, the medieval. They inherited a view. And the reality is that these people, I'll just say 15, 20, they could not envision how a society, how a society could function if there was more than one religious persuasion in that physical space. They, they could not fathom, imagine. And, and uh, so one thing you can say is that the, the Anabaptist alternative to the medieval view was um, before its time. Like, my, in, our, in our day, we, we would not think that this is a weird idea, that you have this separation. But for them, uh, they got killed for this idea. So I could say, well, it's, it was before its time. So they couldn't envision how society can function uh, if more than one religious group existed, and if the religious and civil authorities did not support each other and participate together in decisions, like maybe uh, work hand in glove together, they, did, they couldn't envision that. Um, if you think that um, the struggle is rather odd, the struggle between church and state, well, you see it already in the New Testament. The struggle is there. Uh, you see the struggle in Acts 4 when Peter and John were arrested for teaching that Jesus Christ is Lord and the only one worthy of worship which that was a civil crime because the emperor had to be worshipped. In the view that Gentiles do not need to become Jewish proselytes and keep the law of Moses to, be, to belong to the family of God, that was a Jewish crime. And the response that uh, Peter and John made in Acts 4 is that we must obey God rather than man. So... There's this tension between what does the Bible teach and what, what is a New Testament practice, proper practice, as opposed to what someone else, civil or some other religion, is teaching. And then, of course, you see the same struggle throughout Paul's missionary journeys. When he was arrested or was resisted, either by Jewish authorities or by civil authorities. And uh, this, this uh, struggle with these issues continued throughout the centuries until the Reformation uh, with many, many examples, but I'll just give a few. Uh, with a man like Origen saying in 250 A.D. that Christianity should be protected by the emperor, while Tertullian said the emperor and church have nothing in common. Totally diverse views. And many believers and church leaders 
and movements from the time of Constantine in 300 until the Reformation of 1500 argued for and tried to implement separation of church and state. Many people and groups tried uh, with only a partial, limited, temporary success to make their voice heard. Many of them were killed. And I feel like I need to say, not everyone during that period who argued for separation uh, held to what we consider would consider scriptural beliefs about other things or a variety of things. So, a lot of diversity and a lot of struggle. So, the medieval view is the idea that the church and society are one and the same group of people. And uh, infant baptism was uh, what made, I think I said this before here, was what made a person, a child, a baby, a member of society. And it, it was um, at the time of infant baptism, a person's name was uh, written on a document. Uh, on the county whatever list in Rustburg. And now we know you live, you're born, and you belong to society, and we account for you. And uh, this is how we uh, figure out what the taxes are for your family or whatever. I don't know what all, but... That all happened at infant baptism. It was a civil thing and a religious thing. So everyone in society is Christian. And the idea that the religion of the territory should be determined politically, either by decree of the political leader or by decree of the political ruling body, like a council, which which was determined by the religion of the majority in the territory, the physical territory. And this medieval view is the view of all religious groups and all civil rulers in 1520. Everyone thought like this. And this was the view of Zwingli uh, in Missouri, where... Uh, Anabaptism started, the baptizing again started. It was Wingley's view, and it was the view of the Missouri City Council. And this is also, and this might shock you, but this is also the view that, that Gravel and Mons and what, what you would call the Anabaptist Brethren had uh, prior to 1525. In other words, they, they were witnessing in the community uh, preaching, promoting their you-must-be-born-again-before-you're-baptized idea and all the attending ideas. And their goal was to, to get a, a lot of people in the community to agree with them 
and and support participate with them and they were hoping that this would influence the Zurich City Council so that the City Council would accept them as a valid religion. They wanted it to be the religion of the of Zurich. And of course that didn't happen. So by 1525, there's about five years in there where that was going on. By 1525, most, if not all, well it wasn't all, but most, Anabaptist-leaning people had abandoned this view and embraced what I will call radical dualism, which is the second one on your bulletin. And I I didn't call this radical dualism uh, because I was trying to be critical of it as, I'm not saying it was radical in a bad way. I'm saying radical because it was so different from the medieval. Sharply different. Okay? So, radical dualism. So this, this is the position that's presented, represented by the Schleitheim Confession of 1527. And uh, the Schleitheim Confession is the first, as far as we know, Anabaptist document, like a statement of faith. And this, this is February 1527, which is two years and a month after the first baptisms in Zurich. And the Schleitheim Confession was written to counter uh, several Anabaptist-leaning people who the writers, the authors of the Schleitheim Confession felt that these two people in particular were were on the wrong track. And uh, the two people they were writing against were Hans Dank and uh, Huck, H-U-T, which I will talk about in a little bit. The, the view of Schleitheim Confession is that everything outside the church is, and I'm, I'm saying this in a really stark way, Everything outside the church is of the devil and should be avoided. And uh, the position is arrived at based on a radical dualistic view, the two-kingdom idea. Uh, The idea that the magistracy is a part of the unredeemed world and the Christian cannot serve as a magistrate. So I want to uh, talk a little bit about the Schleitheim Confession. Uh, as I'm talking here, I'm feeling a little concerned that, um, that I'm sounding like I think the Schleitheim Confession is a terrible thing, which I don't feel that way. Uh, but it was stark. Okay, so it had seven articles. And the article one said that baptism has to be after proof of repentance, 
and a resolution to amend one's life after assurance of forgiveness, after expression of intention to follow Christ, to be buried with Him, to resurrect with Him to a new life, and the person has to request baptism. So this is getting rid of infant baptism. This is uh, sometimes called adult baptism, believer's baptism. Article 2, the ban. So the ban, this is discipline. Uh, they said this is an alternative to killing heretics. Use the ban as an alternative to killing heretics and people who fail to follow Christ. And they, they viewed uh, discipline and the ban as a very positive thing. I mean, would it not feel very positive to practice the ban as opposed to being killed? Yeah. They didn't think about the ban the way we do. Oh, how terrible that is. Um, so the ban, for those who do not respond to admonition, uh, of course, sometimes later, after 1527, the ban was uh, used maybe almost like to protect one another, but I don't think that's what they had in mind. Uh, so discipline, church discipline. So that's mentioned Article 2. Article 3 is on communion. And of course, the authors of the Slighton Confession are trying to respond to, to a religious condition, Roman Catholicism, and also what they saw with Lutherans and, and the Reformed to some extent, not as much as Lutherans. That people, people in the territory, everybody belongs to the church and baptize infants and give communion to everybody and anybody, everybody is living more or less. I don't want to exaggerate, but more or less as they want and nobody is doing anything about it. So this is the concern. So with communion, they said it's only for those who are properly baptized, Christ is Savior and Lord, only those who have forsaken evil. It can't be, their confession cannot be a head and brain thing, but a heart and life change. They said that grace is not present in the bread and wine. They rejected transubstantiation, uh, had a memorial view in an effort effort to get rid of this. You take the bread and wine, you are automatically receiving grace and being saved. And it's only for the regenerated. The fourth article is on separation. I'm trying to move along. And uh, the goal of this article on separation is to reject uh, The idea that that anybody can be uh, an upright Christian who lives any way they want. Uh, so they said there are only two camps. 
the God in the good camp and the devil in the evil camp. And, and everyone who's outside of God is of the devil, is following the devil. So, they said, no attendance of non-Anabaptist worship services or meetings, no attendance of drinking houses, no pledges and commitments outside the church, uh, no, no fellowship with those who live in sin, no involvement in non-religious civil activities. And I'll just say, some of that might sound a little radical, but they had their reasons. Article 5 was on pastors. So, their thought was, you can't have the kind of church we're talking about unless you have a certain kind of pastor. So, here's the pastor. He must have a good report. His responsibility is to read, admonish, read the Scripture. Admonish and warn in light of the Scripture. He is supposed to lead out in worship. He offers communion to those separated from evil. He's supported by the church according to his need. And uh, there can be no discipline of a pastor without several witnesses. Can't be a I don't like you sort of response or approach to a leader. Article 6 is on the sword. They said it is ordained of God outside, and their term was the perfection of Christ. So the sword is government, is ordained of God outside the perfection of Christ. And what they meant by the perfection of Christ is kind of a technical term. Uh, meaning outside the Matthew 18 pattern of how you disciple one another. But Christ is not working to perfect His people, grow His people, through the use of the sword. So can a Christian, they had several questions. Can a Christian use the sword to rid the church of evil? And the answer was, no, follow Christ's example. Can a Christian pass judgment in worldly disputes between unbelievers? And the answer was, we don't have responsibility for the evil outside the church. Follow the example of Christ. Uh, and third question was, shall one, can one, shall one be a magistrate? The answer, follow the example of Christ. We are not called to rule over the lost. Article 7 was swearing of oaths. Uh, so through infant baptism, each person had become a member of society and is obligated to uphold laws and defend civil authority. It was like an oath to commit to civil government, uh, defend it, uh, participate in its decisions. So normally everyone was required to reconfirm the civic oath annually. A promise to uphold the laws enacted by civil authorities, such as decisions of city council. This is a yearly annual thing. 
So there were three issues they raised. Should believers make promises to civil authorities to abide by the laws of the land no matter what those laws are? Should believers promise to seek the truth about past events? Should believers make promises about future events? Um, and their, their answers to these questions was no. Uh, you shouldn't have to be making a promise to tell the truth about something that's happened. You just tell the truth. You shouldn't have to make a promise about something in the future because you don't know what's going to be in the future. Say if God will. Um, and uh, the last statement, I think one of the last statements in the uh, Schleitheim Confession said uh, something like, uh, the truth now revealed must be fulfilled now without swerving. Okay, this is what the Bible teaches and this is what you have to do and you shouldn't be getting off the path. Do the thing that's right to do. So these kind, these kind of ideas and, and about this kind of ideas did disrupt the way society had functioned. They ran counter to the uh, prevailing ideas. And uh, that, is, that is why uh, Anabaptists were killed. Okay, the third category I have is provisional pacifism. Uh, I have adjusted. I'm not going according to the uh, list on the bulletin. Um, provisional pacifism, and I have two people here, Hoot and Hoffman. Um, Hans Hoot. So he believed there would be a different there would be different ethical requirements depending on the period of history. Like during some periods of history, God would want His people to do this. During other periods of history, God would want His people to do something else. Um, he believed that believers established the kingdom on earth with peaceful means but that God will exercise vengeance against the ungodly at some point. He said, whether at the hand of the Turks, maybe they would punish the ungodly. I'm not sure what he thought. Whether he thought the Turks were not ungodly, I'm not sure. Uh, but whenever it is that God decides to exercise vengeance, he thought that would be the time that believers would assist Christ in the punishment of evildoers. He focused on the uh, soon return of Christ. He made predictions. He thought that those who repented in the last days would certainly survive to join with Christ and slay the wicked. That's a quote. Now, despite his uh, emphasis on a future time when believers in Christ would slay the wicked, he, he kept himself personally from revolutionary tendencies. Like he didn't go and do anything revolutionary. Um, 
He, he was uh, known for his missionary activity. Did a lot of uh, preaching, and uh, he had the idea that um, when 144,000 people and a Baptist entered the fold, uh, Christ would return. Um, <clears throat> so just let me say, uh, there are a lot of things that people have believed over the centuries, and uh, there, there are so many ways to fall into a theological, biblical ditch. There just are so many ways, and uh, I'm not saying that to say that I have avoided all the ditches, or that all of us have avoided all the ditches, and we are more informed and holy than everyone else. I'm just saying that these are, sometimes I think it's not that hard to fall into a ditch. And uh, there are there are reasons, I think, why people fall into a ditch. Um, I'll mention one here in a little bit. Uh, then we have Hoffman. Um, he, he was the kind of person Luther would definitely have called a shawarma. Shawarma. Does anybody know what the word shawarma means? Okay, I'll talk more about it in a little bit. He set dates for the return of Christ. Christ's return will take place in 1533. In 1530, he was teaching, I'm just mentioning this in passing, he was teaching a peculiar view of the incarnation of Christ called the heavenly flesh view, which influenced Mental Simons and Dirk Phillips, the view that Christ brought his body from heaven, and it, it was not the result of any contribution by Mary. Uh, in 1531, he visited Holland, and some of his followers were beheaded. And as a result, he decided to postpone baptism for two years because uh, he read in Ezra 4.24 that there was a two-year postponement of building of the temple because of the opposition of the Samaritans. <coughs> Okay, so this question of biblical interpretation and application, uh, this is part of the reason that Hoffman and Hoot got in the ditch, is because of their way of um, the, the, um, the rules of interpretation that they used and their tendency towards um, dreams and visions and spiritualism. I don't know if that's quite the right word. But um, in 1532, he returned to Strasbourg, and he was discovered that he had been uh, asked to leave before. He returned and was discovered by the city council so 
he left and he went to the Netherlands and he promoted quiet Anabaptism. He wasn't revolutionary at that time. But sometime during 1532, as a result of the vision of a prophetess, a lady who told him what she had envisioned, he came to the conclusion that he was Elijah and that Strasbourg was the New Jerusalem. And he thought, I don't know how he came to this conclusion, but he thought he would lie in prison for six months, after which he would be released and would lead the Anabaptist cause to victory. Uh, I'll just say, apparently, he, I, I don't know, you know, I never talked with him. <laughs> I don't know what all was going on in his head but apparently he had a fairly grandiose view of himself. Um, from 1533 to 1543, um, so he left the Netherlands and went back to Strasbourg, and he, and he went without, he didn't try to hide. And uh, the city council, I, I don't know what all they thought about him, but they just ignored him. They ignored him for two months. And then he asked the council to, to arrest him. I mean, some of these stories are really, you know, out there. Maybe you don't want to hear any of these stories, but they fascinate me. He asked the city council to arrest him because he felt like he believed he had to get into jail and be in jail for six months for this whole thing to work out. So he asked them to arrest him, and so they accommodated him. Uh, they arrested him in May of 1533, and he made some predictions about the end of the world. And, and then when things didn't progress as he thought they would, he asked for more severe treatment which they obliged him with. And they put him on bread and water. And uh, in 1943, he died there in prison of illness. Who knows, you know, what was involved. He was not a revolutionary. And he did not believe believers to take up arms. But he did have an influence. And his influence led to more radical Beliefs. Uh, and the interesting thing, too, is that the Swiss brethren, they did not consider him um, a Christian brother, at least not an Anabaptist brother. Okay, the next category is full participation. And I'm going to mention uh, two categories here like full participation in government and in the use of arms. So the first one I have is Hubmeyer. And I'm going to talk a little bit uh, about him as a person. Uh, his position was much like early Grebel, Zurich, and Luther's London. 
He had a doctorate in theology under a man named John Eck, who was a prominent, well-known, well-respected Catholic theologian. Uh, and he was, Hubmeyer was a powerful preacher, very articulate, very persuasive. And he, he was supported by John Eck. John Eck was so proud of Hubmeyer and everything he had learned and accomplished in his abilities and gifts. He, he loved him. In 1521, Hubmeyer became the priest in Waltrip. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. And he was thoroughly Catholic in 1521. Uh, but then in 1522, he began to read Luther, and he was attracted to his ideas, disrupted by them. He visited Erasmus, uh, the Catholic humanist. He corresponded with the Swiss reformers, uh, with uh, Mons and Goebel and those. Uh, he discussed the problem of baptism with Zwingli, he said, on a street in Zurich standing on the street. Um, there was a lot going on for him in 1522. Uh, in 1523, he participated in the second disputation in Zurich, discussion about baptism and communion. And when he returned uh, to his city as priest from those activities and meetings, he, he was all fired up, and he was determined to implement religious reform. So, he, he introduced uh, a new church service, more like the German service being conducted in Zurich. He abolished fasting regulations, and he got married, which none of us have anything against, but... This, this was radical because he's a Catholic priest and he's not supposed to do this. He introduced, um, well, the, the citizens loved him. They loved him. And uh, he hoped to win the clergy to his beliefs as well, but he didn't. The Catholic party uh, in the city and around it demanded that Hubmeyer be removed, but the citizens fought for him, defended him, protected him. But he finally decided that he had to leave because he was afraid there would be such an uproar in the Catholic uh, Catholics would show up and there'd be a lot of people killed. So he left. But his goal was to make Anabaptism the official religion. Uh, he believed the cause He believed that the Christian cause should be sanctioned and supported by an evangelical or regenerate magistrate. 
The true Christian must support the state for his own good and the good of others. Because of this view, Hubmeyer allowed the use of the sword by Christians as an act of obedience to the state. He also talked about just government and just war and suggested that only a just government deserves obedience. He also said that a person should disobey the government when asked to do something evil. And he thought a Christian could hold government office. So uh, Hubmeyer was burned at the stake in 1528 because um, because he had resisted uh, Ferdinand, Emperor Ferdinand, in relation to his being a priest there in that city, and and he had embarrassed Ferdinand, and you don't embarrass an emperor and get away with it, and and uh, Ferdinand demanded that he be captured and disposed of, and so he was arrested after various things happened I won't go into, and he was burned at the stake. Okay, the second type of uh, full involvement, full participation, is uh, Munster and Munster. Now, Munster is a man's name, Thomas Munster. And Munster is a city name, and they are not the same, and Thomas Munster was not involved in Munster. But they had the same ideas, did the same sorts of things. So Thomas Munster, first of all. Uh, more than any other person, he, he is the one, the reason. He's the reason Martin Luther became completely opposed to Anabaptists. Uh, he was a spiritualist who said, this is a quote, that he would not trust Luther even if he had swallowed a dozen Bibles. I'm sorry, but some of these things are rather humorous. Some are really sad. So That's what he said. He would not trust Luther even if he had swallowed a dozen Bibles. To which Luther replied that he would not trust Munster either, even if he, and I'm sorry, but even if he had swallowed the Holy Spirit feathers and all. Okay, and you have to understand that uh, maybe we're more civilized in some ways today. I, I asked one of my instructors, how come, how come religious leaders back in the 16th century were so crass? Why did they say such mean things and use vulgar language and all of this in their debates and whatever? And he said, well, because they didn't have TV. So nobody, nobody, you know, this didn't get around too much, but obviously it got around to us today. But... Yes, that you have to understand that there was a lot of strong things said to one another back then. So his sermons attracted persons from the lower classes of society. I'm talking about Thomas Munster. Because he spoke about equality, freedom, freedom and anti-clericalism, 
which resulted in him gaining a large following among the peasants, who viewed him as someone who could lead them against the opposition, the oppression of the nobles. And in the spring of 1525, he led the peasants in an armed revolt against well-armed nobles in what became known as the Great Peasants' War. And thousands of peasants were killed, and Munzer was captured, tortured, and executed. And as a result of these events, Luther referred to Anabaptists as Schwarmer, Schwarmer, meaning a person driven by irrational impulses and emotions rather than by common sense. I can kind of see why Luther thought that and used that word. Okay, the city, Munster. Munster. Um, yeah, this, this is really bad. Um, some Anabaptists took over the city and it, the, their beliefs became more and more radical. Um, they they um, forced people that didn't agree with them to leave the city. Uh, they even, I think, killed some people in the city who didn't agree with them as leaders. Um, they tried to establish, they thought they were establishing the New Jerusalem. Uh, just all kinds of things happened. Um, in 1535, uh, they ran out of food. They're walled in the cities. They have no food. Um, the enemy finally got into the city. I think someone inside betrayed, let them in. Uh, because because the conditions were so terrible inside the city and the things that were being done and polygamy and I don't know what all. It was really bad. Uh, the Catholics got in the city um, and uh, defeated them and the leaders were tortured and put to death. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, you've probably heard or seen of this page on some building in this town where these three people, I think it was three of the leaders, were um, hung up there for I don't know how many, hundreds of years maybe. Does anyone know the story of that? I don't have it clearly in mind. Okay, so that, that was full involvement, revolutionary. Okay, cautious involvement is the last one I have. The government has been ordained by God to control the evil in the world. If the government could carry out this function with Christian love, then the government could truly be considered Christian. 
However, most Anabaptists concluded that governmental authority could not be exercised in love and should therefore be avoided. And uh, I think I'm right about this, that the people who fit in this category would be people like Hans Dank, Pilgrim Marpeck, Menna Simons, uh, and the Dortford Confessions uh, fit somewhat into this category. Um, I'm running out of time. Uh, so I'm going to... Um, I'm going to give a little summary here. Um, I believe it is accurate to say that the Anabaptist movement in the 16th century moved from a variety of positions, as I've described, to what we now refer to as a non-resistance and non-participation in government positions, which has been the general Anabaptist Mennonite position of more conservative groups of Mennonites. Uh, so I'd like to raise several items of concern or application in, in relation to all of this. Uh, I have four. The term, the first one, the term non-resistance gives the idea that believers are passive, that love requires that they do not resist evil or cause conflict. And uh, I can really identify with that point, because I hate conflict. I believe this understanding of non-resistance has contributed to our failure to address abuses, verbal, physical, sexual, in Mennonite churches. It contributes to it. And it probably contributes to our avoidance of conflict for the sake of peace and tranquility. It can make it hard for people to, to actually talk about things that distract them, things that are evil, things they have questions about. So I'll just say, I believe the New Testament calls for us to resist evil in the power of the Holy Spirit and not with carnal force. And I know that it can be hard to know just how to do that, but I'm just raising that as one concern. And the second one, I believe it is very easy in our day to become caught up in the political um, rhetoric in the, in the U.S. today and around the world. And um, I, I do read some myself. And I don't know what the perfect balance is between uh, complete ignorance and obsession with political issues. Uh, but I, knew, I do know that uh, no politician is going to be able to right all the wrongs in society. It will not happen. Um, I'll just tell a real quick story. I had an instructor at Liberty who came from Grace College in Indiana, and he said that he moved to Liberty 
because he was attracted by the more majority approach and trying to influence government through religious beliefs. And he said that he now uh, was totally disillusioned because he realized now that that was not a valid approach. I just found that interesting. Another issue, a few of us grew up in the Vietnam War era. <coughs> Two of us here, Leon and I, and the rest of you are too young. Or maybe still, maybe, almost. Um, and we served two years in 1W, and, and most of you don't know what 1W means. As an alternative to joining the military, and I, I've wondered uh, for many years uh, why many of the units and opportunities for voluntary service have been dismantled since people are not required to do anything. And so we don't do anything. And I know that's not quite fair because we have people who do volunteer for things. But this, this thing of um, we, our, 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 our non-resistant thoughts are heightened when there's military, um, when, when we have to do something about the issue and when, when we're not required to join the military, then the issue kind of goes away. But it's not important. Anyway, it's just something I'm not sure what we're supposed to do about it. But. And then uh, we have these verses here on the board, and then there's Romans 13, uh, 1 to 7. And I know I have not talked about what the Bible teaches about that, but the subject, and um, that's, that will have to be sermon for another day. I really uh, do hope, and I know we're out of time, but I do hope there can be some response here. Um, I just like to hear what you have to say. Thank you.